by way of introduction, uh, I wanted to just kind of hit on a little bit what I think tends to be a common problem in the church and in the way that we we tend to read the scriptures. And, you know, those of us who've grown up in the church and grown up in Sunday school, Sunday school classes, we're well aware of the fact that particularly the Old Testament scriptures tend to be kind of treated in terms of a whole bunch of discrete stories involving characters and and almost as a kind of Aesop's fable. We find uh, these characters presenting to us some sort of moral lesson. Uh, Daniel was courageous. You be courageous. Moses was humble. You be humble. And so, you know, we tend to find in in a character like Saul, whether in Sunday school studies or even in the way that the Old Testament is taught across the pulpit, uh, we find in Saul an example of a man who was disobedient, a man who was unfaithful, a man who, uh, you know, failed as the king of Israel. And so he becomes an example of what not to be if we're going to be uh, faithful to God. And it's not that Saul wasn't unfaithful, it's not that he wasn't disobedient, uh, but my point is that he played a much more significant role in terms of why his story is even in the scriptures, uh, the significance of his life, the significance of his reign. Viewed within the larger biblical storyline, Saul's significance lies in his being the point of transition between Israel is a theocracy and Israel is a theocratic monarchy. Big words, but essentially Israel was founded with God as king. God was king in Israel, and for the first several centuries, they had no uh, human king, right? And we've seen how the whole process of Saul becoming king came about. And it was by God's own design that ultimately Israel would have a human king. It would become a theocratic monarchy in which the human king was effectively God's own rule, God's own will, God's own mind, God's uh, lordship over his kingdom, but administered through a human king. And we saw how that was God's design all along, ultimately, that he would exercise his rule over his creation through human beings. We saw that even in the creation account. Man was created in God's image and likeness to be the point of his own lordship, the point of his own administration of his rule over the works of his hands. And Israel, as a uh, as a, um, an expression of the kingdom of God was to be ordered in the same sort of way. So it was always God's intent that there would be a human king who would administer his lordship. And it's in that context that we understand Saul's failure. The Israelite kingdom ultimately would be uh, the fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham uh, as a kingdom promised to him, land, seed, and blessing, a royal line of descendants, a, a land of dominion, and ultimately mediating the glory of God, the blessing of God to all the families of the earth. Well, that promise was realized in Israel's experience, ultimately, as we're going to see in relation to David. He's the one through whom God brought about the fullness of the kingdom promised to Abraham. And yet even then, that kingdom was destined to fail. But that failure began with Saul. Saul, as I say, was a failed image son. 
his failure wasn't so much his personal disobedience, his personal failures as a human being, as much as the failing of kingship, which ultimately speaks to the failing of this role, this human role of image sonship. Man as regal Lord administering God's lordship over the works of his hands. So Saul's failure points as, as the first king of Israel, it points to the challenge that God is going to face in fulfilling his own intent for the world. Ultimately, that God's kingdom will be him presiding as king over a kingdom through human beings. And Saul's failure speaks to the challenge that God is going to have. Remember, God said, pick whoever you want as a king. This is how he will rule. And we saw the antithesis of the procedure of the king uh, uh, compared with how God would have his king to reign. So God's rejection of Saul then as Israel's king, I would argue, was ultimately his rejection of Adamic man the sons of Adam, as unable to fulfill the human identity and vocation as image son. That's how the scripture wants you to understand Saul's failure. And it becomes the beginning of a whole stream of failures of human kings. And we'll see even David himself will fall short. So we have to look at Saul's reign and and the dynamics of his reign and and his role in Israel's history through the lens of Israel's place in God's overall purpose for the world. We have to look at it through that lens, not just simply as a human being who disobeyed God. That's bad. You don't disobey God. You do what God has to say. So Saul's reign underscored the need for a different sort of ruler, a ruler who would not rule according to the procedure of the king, a regal son devoted to his divine father and to that father's rule. And God's choice of David was the answer to that need. He was the anti-Saul in that sense. And we saw first and foremost, David's own lineage as a descendant of Judah made him suited, at least a potential candidate to be the king of Israel because God had entrusted the scepter to Judah. Saul was of a different tribe. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And in that sense, he was illegitimate from the outset. But David was of the tribe of Judah, and he would end up presiding first and foremost over the tribe of Judah. And even when his kingdom was stripped from him or or broken apart, he still remained king over Judah. But he was of the tribe of Judah. But he is God's answer to the procedure of the king. He's the the anti-Saul in that sense. So the text introduces him before he's even named. When God is rejecting Saul, he says, I have found another man, a man after my own heart. He hasn't even been named. David hasn't even been identified yet. But God has said, this man will be defined in this way, not by his name, not by his family, not by his status, not by any normal considerations that people would tend to look at, but according to a criterion of the inner man, a man after my own heart. So you have this antithesis at the outset in the kingship in Israel, procedure of the king versus man after God's own heart. 
Someone who will effectively manifest God's own mind and will and heart and love and wisdom. A man whose rule will be Yahweh's rule in Israel. So David is identified in that way as a man after God's own heart. That's the criterion that God has for human kingship. Now, of course, at this point, it remains to be seen whether David will fulfill that obligation. And in a sense, he will. In a sense, he won't. David, too, will fall short. And that becomes itself, as we'll see, the springboard for God's covenant with David that a son to come from David will be what David was not. David would find his own ultimate realization and fulfillment as that sort of king in this descendant to come from him. So the first thing then that the text shows is how God identifies this man, David. He's already said, I found a man after my own heart. Now we find out who that person is. And so God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse. And through this process of elimination, going through all of his sons from the oldest to the youngest, um, David is finally identified. At this point, he's probably somewhere around 15 years old, maybe Um, There's a lot of uncertainty as to exactly how old he is. He'll become king. He'll be coronated at 30 years of age. But he's old enough to be tending his father's flocks. He's already recognized as having uh, some sort of military prowess. He's he's treated as as a young man. But he's probably still a teenager. He's not married. He's still in his father's house. But David is the one who is identified. And through that process of of, uh, selection, process of elimination, again, what's underscored is that God has a different criterion. All these sons are looked at, okay, this must be the one. He's the oldest. Nope. Well, this one, he's tall and he's strong. Nope, not that one. And it keeps going down the line until finally the last candidate, the one who's not even present at the time, they have to send for him. And he comes in from the sheepfold. And that will become important. David becomes the shepherd of Israel. God took him from the sheepfold to shepherd his people. You see that in Psalm 78. So David is identified in that way by Samuel. And the Lord says, take this oil and anoint him. And he's anointed in the midst of his brothers. So his whole family, including his older brothers, see that he's the one. In a sense, God is upsetting the natural order as he's done all along, right? The elder will serve the younger. The selection of Isaac, the selection of Jacob. The youngest is chosen by God according to a criterion of the inner man, not what meets the eye. And then the Lord shows his own Uh, affirmation of David, his own anointing of David by giving him his spirit. Remember, the Lord took his spirit from Saul. Now he gives his spirit to David, and the spirit now stays with David for the rest of his life. As long as he lives, David will be Yahweh's anointed king. And as we talked about, this issue of anointing with the spirit has nothing to do with being saved or not being saved. It's not the giving of the spirit in the Pentecost sense of being saved. It's God giving his spirit to a man so that that man is now equipped to rule in his name 
with his mind, with his wisdom. So the taking of the spirit from Saul and giving, to the, and giving the spirit to David is the way in which God is saying, I've taken the kingship from you, Saul, and David is to be my king. He will rule over my people in the power and the leading, the wisdom of my spirit. David will remain God's man throughout his life. Unlike Saul, who, who only uh, was acknowledged by God for a short period of time. So the Lord stripped his kingdom from Saul and gave it to David, and yet Saul will continue to reign for many years. David has been anointed as Yahweh's king, but he doesn't walk from that episode of anointing to get the crown put on his head. Saul still continues to live and rule as king in Israel, probably for more than 10 years, maybe as much as 15 years. Like I said, if David was about 15 at that time, he took the throne at 30. So for many years. And throughout those years of hardship and unjust suffering, which is the way in which David is prepared for the throne of Israel, throughout those years of hardship and suffering, the Lord demanded of David that he believe his word to him, you are my man, and his anointing of him rather than his circumstance. David has to believe, the, believe his God for an outcome that seems very unlikely. In fact, David is constantly under the threat of death. He believes he's going to die, and there are many times when he comes close to being killed. So God withdrew his spirit from Saul, dispatched to him a different spirit to torment him. I don't believe the idea here is that God sent a demon, an evil spirit in that sense, to torment Saul. But one of his own angels he sent to vex Saul, to afflict him, primarily in his mind and in his spirit. Saul had already demonstrated that he was not God's man. He was not going to rule with God's mind in God's wisdom He was going to rule in his own name for his own purposes. And that alienation between him and God, marked by fear, by suspicion, by unrest, by discomfort, by anxiety, is heightened now by this spirit that God sends to afflict him. And this distancing of Saul from God even manifests itself in the fact that Saul's becoming increasingly detached from reality. He's paranoid. He thinks people are out to get him. He believes David is out to get him. And even though throughout this process, this takes us through the rest of 1 Samuel, David keeps demonstrating by his words and by his works that he's devoted to Saul. Yet Saul and Saul in the moment will say, you're right, I'm sorry, I've misjudged you. But he'll return back to that same paranoia and that sense of this man is a threat to my kingdom, to my throne. So initially, David's relationship with Saul is that he's called on as, a, an, as anointed of the Lord and as a gifted musician to minister to Saul. When Saul is particularly distressed and anxious, David plays music for him, and it has a kind of comforting, calming effect. And Saul comes to love David, so much so that he brings him into his inner circle, even making him his armor bearer, which is his closest Uh, associate 
as the commander of the forces of Israel. And he finds in David a man who is indeed close to God. The, the, God is with this man. And he brings comfort and consolation to Saul. So even at this point, David becomes the comforter of Israel. But what really is the, the turning of his fortunes is the episode with Goliath. Throughout the rest of Saul's life, the Philistines are the primary enemy that the Israelites keep fighting. And it will be in warfare with the Philistines that Saul will be killed. But at this point in, in this uh, conflict with the Philistines, this one individual, Goliath of Gath, we all know the story, is put forth as the champion of the Philistines. And he says, let's not have this big warfare between your army and our army. Send out your best fighter. He and I will settle this ourselves. And Saul's afraid to go out, and all the other men are afraid to go out. Well, David goes out just to check on his brothers, his older brothers, who are fighting uh, in Saul's army. And through this process, he's like, what's going on here? Well, there's this, this uh, Philistine who's challenging. He's like, who's, why are we putting up with this? Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is to challenge the armies of the living God? I'll go, I'll fight him. Well, initially, uh, they try to put Saul's armor on him, but it's big and it's cumbersome. And he said, I'm not used to fighting with this. I'm not used to wearing this kind of thing. Um, let me just go and engage him myself. He says, you know, I've, I've killed the lions and the bears. I'll go out. I'll take care of this uncircumcised Philistine. So he draws some stones from the brook there, and he goes out only with his sling. And he's meeting this, the, the text presents Goliath as, as a super soldier. He's big, he's strong, he's skilled, he's valiant, he's well armored, he's got a massive sword. And here is standing this young guy just in his tunic with a little sling and some stones. It, it, it's the absolute maximum contrast that you can have in a situation where you would say this kid's going to get his head handed to him. But David goes out, not in his own name, but on behalf of his zeal for the God of Israel. This man is challenging the God of Israel, the armies of Israel. And we know the story. David slings a stone, hits him in the head, knocks him out, and he goes over and he takes his sword and he cuts off his head. Well, that leads us into the episode then that I had Dylan read, where now this great victory David is commemorated in two ways. Saul takes him and he makes him the commander of his army. But what happens now is the people are commemorating David in song, celebrating him in a song by which they are exalting him above Saul. Saul has slain his thousands. David is tens of thousands. So David is being exalted in the hearts and the minds of the people more than Saul. Now, Saul's already, and he understands that the spirit's been taken from him. He understands that the kingdom's been taken from him. He's been told that twice, right? And Samuel has retracted from him. Samuel is God's prophet. Samuel has nothing to do with him. And yet Saul continues to insist that he's king. He continues in this delusion that I am still the king of Israel. So now his attitude towards David changes and the text says that from that point forward, he became suspicious of David. And he becomes increasingly paranoid. This man is going to take the kingdom from me. 
So the balance of Saul's interaction with David through the years is this constant back and forth. And there are two episodes where you see David uh, having um, a perfect opportunity to kill Saul. One of those circumstances is where um, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself and David's men say, this is the Lord's given you this day. What a perfect opportunity. See, the Lord wants you to go and slay your adversary. Go in there and kill him. And, and David goes in and cuts a part of Saul's robe, but he doesn't kill him. And he keeps insisting, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. God can deal with him. Maybe God will have him killed. Maybe God will see him just come to the end of his life and die. Uh, but God will deal with him. God will give me the throne when he's ready. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. As long as Saul continues, the Lord is allowing him to. And so I'm not going to touch him. And he makes it clear to Saul, I could have killed you and I didn't. And then later on when uh, Saul and his, his men are camping, David sneaks in and again he could have killed him and he doesn't. And he lets him know, I could have killed you and I didn't. So it's this back and forth. It's, it's this back and forth. And through all of this, David remains committed to Saul as Israel's king. He's been anointed as the king of Israel and yet he doesn't say, look, I'm the king you know, get, let's, let's kill this guy. Let, let's, you see, he, he's, he's very much waiting on the Lord. The text wants you to see how David is not ruling according to the procedure of the king. That's the way Saul rules. Saul is ruling in his own self-interest, even in contradiction, in opposition to the Lord's own will. This is about him. David says, this is about the Lord. I'll run and I'll hide and I'll live a life of deprivation and hardship and unjust suffering and persecution um, because I trust the Lord. I trust his timing. I trust what it is that he has for me. So David remains loyal to Saul throughout Saul's life, referring to him even as the Lord's anointed. And if you look at 2 Samuel, Saul dies at the end of 1 Samuel and again, First and Second Samuel are one book in the in the Jewish Bible, in the Tanakh. So Second Samuel is just the continuation of the story. But Saul dies at the end of First Samuel on the battlefield. He falls on his own sword. Well, Second Samuel begins with a man coming to report to David that Saul is dead. And this man is an Amalekite, and he actually at Saul's uh, request assisted Saul in dying. He comes upon Saul leaning on his own sword and Saul says, help me, you know, kill me. And, and this Amalekite man does assist Saul in killing himself. Well, he tells David that story and David has him killed. Not just because he assisted Saul, but because he's also an Amalekite and that has its own kind of storyline. But the point is, is that David laments the death of Saul as well as Jonathan. And he sings this song. Verse 17 of 2 Samuel 1. David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Yashar, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. He calls Saul the beauty of Israel. How have the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. This is, these are Philistine uh, cities. 
lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. O mountains of Geboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. Saul is, is beheaded, and his body is hung on the wall to display as a, as a sign of degradation and humiliation. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothe you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How have the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? Jonathan is slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? So even in death, David still sings the praises of Saul. David is still devoted to Saul. He still does not take any sort of prerogative or initiative in degrading denigrating or in any way trying to you know lord it over the death of Saul in fact he kills the man who again came to him with the news so he had so many opportunities to kill Saul but he would not take those opportunities David was going to wait he was going to get the throne in God's timing and he would be prepared for that throne through patient suffering unjust suffering So just to kind of sum this up then, already we see in this contrast that the scripture paints between Saul and David. Saul epitomizes natural human kingship, the procedure of the king. God says, pick whoever you want. This is what your human king will be. He picks out David as a man who's distinguished as a man after his own heart. So they represent fundamentally these two kinds of kingship, the procedure of the king versus rule as God's image son, image son ruling as a man after God's own heart, ruling in God's name. And already with David, this comes to the forefront, this image of shepherd. The king is a shepherd, the shepherd of Israel. A shepherd tends sheep. In this case, the shepherd of Israel tends Yahweh's sheep. So this shepherding theme or concept that gets associated with the kingship, the proper kingship, it comes to the forefront with David. David is the shepherd of Israel. But it draws on the fact that Yahweh is the great shepherd of Israel. If you look even in Isaiah 40, this last section of Isaiah, where the promise is that God's going to arise and he's going to restore and he's going to renew. We all know the passage. It's the passage of comfort to Zion. God is going to send a forerunner who's going to prepare the path for his own return. When God will arise and he will return and he will forgive and cleanse and put all things right. But if you look at verse 9, it says, this is Isaiah 40, Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. This is after the message of comfort. Comfort my people. Tell her that her conflict is ended. 
So get up on the high mountain, Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Behold, the, your, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and he will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Israel's king was a shepherd, but the shepherd of Yahweh's people. They were to rule with his concerns and his interests in mind, in love and devotion, serving God's people in building his kingdom, not their own. And so not surprisingly, the shepherd became a prominent descriptor for Yahweh's messianic king, the one even associated with David, who by covenant oath to David would fulfill David's own kingship. And I won't take the time to read it now, but if you look at Ezekiel 34, and this comes in the context where Jerusalem is being sacked, it's all going away, David's kingdom, his throne, his house are all in the dirt. But God is pronouncing his judgment on the shepherds of Israel, and he says, I'm no more going to raise up these men, any of these men to shepherd my people. I'm going to come, and I'm going to take up the mantle of the shepherd. I'm going to shepherd my people. And how will I do that? I will raise up David, my prince. David will shepherd my flock. David will be the shepherd of my people. Well, David's been dead for several hundred years. This is referring to the one in whom David's own role as the shepherd of Israel becomes consummated. It's, a, it's the messianic figure who is to come. So the contrast in kingship is this thing of the one who is ruling in God's name and authority, the one in whom God's own reign is being manifested. And that has this shepherding idea at the center of it. But you also see related to that, David and Saul contrasted as these two kinds of kings and kingships in terms of faith and faithfulness. Faithfulness as the life of faith. As I said, David, or Saul rather, sought to preserve his rule and kingdom in opposition to Yahweh's own pronouncement. Even when the spirit was removed from him, and it was obvious because he was being vexed by a spirit that his own people, his own men, his own uh, subjects said, this is a spirit from the Lord whom he has given to torment you. He's taken the kingdom from you. And Samuel retracted and had nothing to do with Saul for the rest of his life. And yet Saul continues to act as king, even to the point of trying to kill the one man who really embodies Yahweh's own faith and faithfulness, Yahweh's own mind and heart towards towards the people of Israel and the kingdom of Israel. He's fighting against Yahweh's own mind and heart, even in his opposition to David. On the other hand, David, as I said, trusted the Lord's word and his anointing through long years of injustice and hardship. So David would obtain the throne through patient, unjust suffering. He wouldn't cling to it through injustice and through unrighteousness. He would wait and he would attain it through patient faithfulness, unjust suffering, which is a key feature of his typological role. Think about how the Messiah would attain the kingship in Israel. How would Messiah become king in Israel? 
And even once David became king, his kingship and reign were still a matter of patient faith. As we're going to see, first of all, he didn't, when Saul died, they didn't say, oh, great, here's David, he's king. No, David is still marginalized. And the men of Judah, the people of Judah, his own tribe, they want him to be king and they anoint him or they receive him as their king. Um, and he's ruling over Judah from Hebron. But Saul's house continues to rule over the other 11 tribes. Saul's son Ishbosheth continues to be the king in Israel. And for the next seven and a half years, there's constant intense warfare between David's house and Saul's house. And it's not until the death of Ishbosheth that David, at that point, all the sons of Israel come over to him and embrace him as king. So his kingship, even over Yahweh's kingdom, the household of Israel, comes in two stages through hardship, through suffering, through warfare, through conflict. And even once he's Lord over all Israel, David's life is and his establishing of God's kingdom is marked by conflict and warfare. He builds the kingdom of God, the kingdom promised to Abraham through conflict, through difficulty, through conquest. The promise to Abraham was that he would be given a kingdom that would extend from the Euphrates River to the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the Mediterranean Sea. And it's David who establishes that kingdom. But he does it through warfare. David is a man of war. David is a man of war. He establishes the kingdom in that way, through patience, through endurance, through hardship, through suffering, through conquest. And then it's his son, Solomon, whose name itself comes from Shalom. Solomon is the king who reigns in the time of peace. He's the one who builds the Lord's house. David establishes the kingdom. Solomon builds the house of God's kingdom in the context of peace. David wants to do that, as we'll see. God says no. And all of that is not because David's done anything wrong. He can't do it because he's a man of war, not because he's done anything wrong. He's fought God's wars. It's because of the typological significance of Solomon and David. David represents that messianic work in how will God's king come to the kingship come to the throne and establish God's kingdom through patient suffering and conquest of the enemies of God and having established that kingdom now that king will rule in the context of peace and in that way he will build his house so Solomon sits on Yahweh's throne presiding over David's kingdom in the conquest in the context of the peace that David has established and in that way he builds Yahweh's house and opens it up as a house that will gather in the nations and we'll see all of that but these are the ideas that the text is building as it's building this case for who, how this Davidic kingship, this man after God's own heart, the sort of king that God would have to be actually the king who will preside over his kingdom, how this is to take place, how this is to work itself out. And all along, God was revealing these things, and yet they would be lost. They would be lost upon the people of Israel, so that when that sort of king came, they would miss it. 
They weren't looking for a king who would establish the throne of Israel through patient suffering. And they missed him. So let me close in prayer. And then the closing song I have kind of speaks to these ideas of God's revealing of his plan and how yet it, it was missed. The God who is God Almighty and yet his plan was missed. But we are the ones who understand that plan. We are the ones who are the partakers in that fulfillment in Jesus himself. Well, let me pray then and we'll, we'll sing this closing song. Father, I pray that even in this flyover um, that you will minister to the heart and the mind of each one here, that you will give us a fresh and a glorious glimpse of your glory that is in the face of Christ. The glory that Paul says is akin to the light that you made shine out of the darkness in the first creation and now by your spirit who is the spirit of new creation, You have caused that light to shine in our hearts. You have illumined to us the glory, the true glory that is yours, that is in Christ our Lord. And I pray that you would give to each one, according to his understanding, a sense of that glory, a fresh glimpse of that glory. And Father, that you will give us, again, a clear sight uh, uh, and a clear path for reading the scripture and for asking the right questions and for being edified and encouraged by this great story that it tells, this unfolding work of renewal, of restoration that has found its yes and amen in Jesus our Lord. And how blessed we are that we have eyes that see, how blessed we are to be the people upon whom the ends of the ages have come, of whom much is given, much is required, And Father, as those who stand in the fullness of the times, who are made alive by your Spirit, and who have had this light made to shine in our hearts, I pray that we would be faithful with that endowment. But that like David, that in our own anointing by the Spirit, we too would live lives of patient faith. That whatever it is that you require of us, whatever a day brings to us, whatever our circumstances however much things would tend to press us away and cause us to question your goodness or question your faithfulness, question your truthfulness, I pray that we would have hearts and minds that are steeled, that are set, that cannot be moved. We know whom we have believed and we are persuaded that he is able to keep what we've entrusted to him against that day. May we live lives of patient endurance knowing that one day all things will indeed be summed up in Christ our Lord. And what a glorious thing to be part of that outcome. Help us to be faithful stewards of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.